Welcome to episode 345 of Live Happy Now. Making the world a better place and helping those around us begins with change from within. And this week, we're getting the blueprint on how to do that. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm joined by Shelley Tegelski, author of the new book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the Community. Last week, you met Shelley and learned about her Pandemic of Love movement. This week, she's talking about the book that tells each of us how we can affect profound change in the world if we first turn inward and care for ourselves. Let's find out more. Well, so Shelly, we have previously talked with you about your fantastic mission and pandemic of love that you created. Now I want to talk to you about Sit Down to Rise Up. And first of all, I wondered if the pandemic of love played any role in you writing this book. Well, it played a role. It really changed the trajectory or I would say completed even what it was that I was originally setting out to write. I actually sold the book proposal prior to the pandemic ever happening or it even being, you know, a thought in anybody's mind at that time. And the book was always supposed to be about self-care and it was supposed to be in two distinct parts, the me section, which is really the inner journey and the we section which is the section about how we can build communities of care and rely on each other. And what happened was, is that after the pandemic you know, broke out and Pandemic of Love started and it started to grow, as I was sitting there struggling, I will say, to write a book, you know, and manage an organization and deal with just the emotional toll of being in the middle of the pandemic, I recognized that really there was a third piece of the puzzle missing. And that was the section about us. And the us section is really about movements and about how communities of care specifically that we journey when we are all rowing in the same direction, how we can affect change and how the journey can move from we to us and we can change systems and we can change and rebuild sort of the future in the way that we want to be living it and make it a better place. As corny or cliche as that might sound, but the reality is, is that I've seen it happening, you know, in real time and it's uh, very encouraging. And that's what's so interesting is that you had sold this proposal before the pandemic, and this book seems so perfectly suited for us right now because of the hope that it offers. And I do want to get into the three stages of the journey in a little bit, but first go back to your radical self-care, because what is radical self-care? Can you explain how it differs from our regular self-care and how we start practicing it? Well, I'm not really sure, you know, what regular self-care is as defined in today's terms, to be honest with you, because if you Google self-care or the hashtag self-care, you know, you'll find all sorts of images and definitions that I personally wouldn't qualify as self-care. Yeah, you've got se, someone who right? thinks it's like sitting down with a bottle of wine, like this is my self-care. <laughs> right. Or like buying a new handbag, you know, yeah. that's self-care. It's retail therapy. So Really, you know, radical self-care is the understanding that, first of all, self-care has nothing to do with money. We can enact self-care and, you know, and still be struggling socioeconomically, fiscally, financially. It may be more difficult, and we will get into that in a minute about how to kind of overcome that. But radical self-care is really a hearkening to the roots 
to get back to the roots of where self-care started. And self-care actually, the movement itself started and was rooted in feminism and in the civil rights movement, which were both very radical things. And the reason that self-care and the movement even cropped up was because these individuals who were marginalized needed and required self-care to literally survive. Now we associate the term self-care with thriving, but we seem to forget that many people amongst us, many people in this country are still just struggling to survive. You know, Mm -hmm. so when we Google what the industrial wellness complex wants to tell us that self-care is, then we associate it with this thriving notion. But it really has to be rooted first and foremost into survival. And that's what makes it really so radical. And you're a meditation teacher, so it's not surprising that meditation plays a fundamental role in this book. Can you explain to us why that is such an important part of the process? Well, self-awareness is one of the most important tools that we have, the ability to respond to life versus react to it. You know, when we're reacting to life, we may not be reacting in a way that is commensurate with how we want to see the world right? It physiologically, biologically, it could be affecting us, our reactions. If we don't sort of grab control or grab the harness and make sure that we understand how we can really take a collective pause and respond from a completely different place. Meditation also helps us, you know, once we do become self-aware and we're able to sort of sit with discomfort and understand where it's stemming from, it allows us to show up differently in the world. It allows us to, you know, really improve the quality of the way that we show up in daily interactions in our daily lives and our interactions with the people that we care about the most and the work that we care about the most that's really aligned with our vision and our values. We have a lot of people on the show who say, meditation is too hard. And I'm glad you're here because you are a teacher. And what do you say to people that are like, yeah, I know I should meditate, but I can't. It's just too much for me. How do we pare that down and be able to incorporate meditation in our life if we've got monkey mind or if we just have the mindset that, yeah, that's too much for me? Well, so I think that it's because, you know, if we think that way, we're thinking that meditation falls into a specific box that we have to meditate in a certain way, right? We have to sit in a certain way. We do it for a certain amount of time. We have to practice a certain practice. And the reality of that is that none of that is actually true. Everybody Um, just breathed a sigh of relief. They're like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) scientifically, of course, you know, there are people that, you know, have, have studied neuroscientists who have been able to study, you know, what is effective when it comes to, you know, so they could tell you that this many minutes and that many, but the reality is, is that, you know, I'm a very big fan of micro habits. I'm a very big fan of incorporating mini techniques, mini micro practices into your day without changing anything about your day. And I'll give you an example, right? You know, all of us are human beings and we all have to use the bathroom multiple times a day. We have biological needs and certainly hope that after we do so, of course, we have to wash our hands. And now the CDC has even shown us in the past two years (laughs) how to do that properly, you know, and that we need to take 60 seconds and how we just need to scrub our hands. 
So imagine if during those 60 seconds, rather than being on speakerphone or, you know, kind of checking on the lines of your face or whatever it is that you do when you're kind of or letting your mind wander, take those 60 seconds while you're washing your hands to do a simple breathing exercise, you know, a four, seven, eight breath. So breathing in for four, pausing for seven, exhaling out for eight, or take a moment to do box breathing, or just to be aware of your breath. Or even if you don't want to initially breathe, you can look at your hands and the suds you know, that are forming or on your hands and your fingertips and just really, you know, find a meditative practice in that. So, you know, if you're the type of person that doesn't feel comfortable breathing or you're in a public restroom and you're like, gosh, this is going to look weird or self-conscious. Okay. Well then, you know, how about just taking a moment to be present and actually like using the hand-washing technique as meditation? watching the suds, really taking a moment to feel how your hands are touching each other, you know? And so that's just a very simple example of a micro practice. Another example would be, you know, before moving from one activity to the next, before moving from one part of your day to the next, create these like spaces, these sacred pauses in between moving from a meeting to emails, moving from one phone call to the next, moving from your car, if you're back to commuting, to walking into your house. And I, you know, liken these to mudrooms, to foyers that exist. You know, we create these like mudrooms, these spaces where we can like leave all the dirt behind do a simple reset practice, a breathing technique for 16 seconds, for 30 seconds, for one minute. And then you'll notice how the quality of the way you show up into the next activity is completely different. And so we could just start there. Start there and don't be so hard on yourself and make it so difficult because I think, you know, we just have these, again, ideas and these sort of things that we feel like this is what meditation is. And the reality is, is that so many different things when we take meditation off the cushion can be meditative and they can be the seed that's planted for us to be able to move into a formalized practice. So in many ways, it's just becoming intentional about whatever act we're doing. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's about intention, but I think I'm a very big fan of breathing practices because I think that they help us kind of root in that intention. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And people can even leave a sticky note in the beginning to remind themselves that this is what I'm supposed to do, because I know sometimes I'll decide I'll talk to someone and say, that's fantastic. I'm going to start doing that. And I do it for a day and I don't mean to abandon it. It's just I forget (laughs) that, you know, maybe like in this case, I would walk out of the bathroom and be like, oh, I was supposed to be breathing, not singing Cindy Lauper lyrics. Like, you know. Yeah, well. Here's another quick tip. You know, you can take a dry erase marker and write on the mirror. And oh, I it's love that. so easy to just wipe that off, you know, whenever you need to as you develop that habit. But it'll be there every time you go into the bathroom, you'll see it on the mirror. That's fantastic. What a great tip. Thank you. We're going to start doing that here. I bet a lot of other people are ordering that dry erase right now. So, yeah. <laughs> so in talking about the book, I, you have three parts, as we mentioned, like three stages of this journey that you're taking us on. And can you break down each of these sections, address each one and sure. what they mean for us? 
Sure. So the first section of the book is the inner journey. It's the journey of me. And it really talks a lot about how we all have agency, but that some of us actually also have a sense of that agency and how it really is helpful for us in terms of how we show up in the world to grab hold of that sense of agency, right? Let me ask you, because you describe it so well in the book, and I've heard people talk about agency. I've very rarely seen it presented as well as you do in your book. Can you give us a little brief explanation of what you mean by agency? Sure. So agency means that people recognize how their choices born from our God-given free will will affect other people. And it means that we have the ability to be reflective to have awareness and to be introspective about our actions. So that's, you know, really what it means to like, you know, just have that sense of agency, right? So we all have that God-given free will, but if we have a sense of it, it really can help to change the quality again, or how the way we show up in the world is much more impactful. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So the book talks in the first section about agency and about how we can kind of reclaim that sense of agency or claim it for the first time. And it talks a lot about how we can build formalized self-care practices and why they're so important to create, why it is important to write down and to formalize and to understand not only what our break glass in case of emergency self-care plan is, but also what the obstacles are that are causing us or preventing us from actually enacting those things on a regular basis. And I take time to really explain what self-care is and what it isn't. And hopefully, you know, just set the premise that is there then for the rest of the book as we move into the second part, which is the journey of we, which is really a journey about communities. And what I talk about is how, you know, once we've formalized our self-care practices and once we've identified our obstacles, it's very clear to see how we as humans need to survive and thrive in these ecosystems. You know, we have been taught about Darwinian theory for, you know, in school for a long time, you know, and people's minds automatically, when we talk about Darwinian theory, people think up survival of the fittest. Again, that is immediately the association because people think, well, you know, that's what our Western capitalistic societies want us to think about is that, you know, it's sort of every man for himself, if you will, or every person or every woman for themselves. And so, you know, the notion here is that, no, you know, Darwin also talked about how communities, ecosystems, species have to rely on each other in order to survive, in order to continue to evolve. And, you know, so we really have to lean into this idea that coexistence is what is going to allow us to not only survive, but to thrive. And so that's what the second section is about. It's about how once we've created the self-care plans, how we've identified our obstacles, how we can formally take these plans and create, again, formalized communities of care. 
institutionalized communities of care in very real and tangible and practical ways. I don't really talk about things in a very high level theoretical way because I want people to be able to read this book and to just say, ah, I can do that. That makes sense. You know, this is something I can incorporate into my life and like sort of reframe things for people so that, yeah, you know, we might all have like our friend group or our support network or the friends that we call or the people that we like to hang out with. But if we can formalize, at least in a very small sense, our discussions around self-care, around what obstacles people are facing, then we can move into the space of mutual aid, which is removing those obstacles for each other, removing, you know, what is holding people back. So I'll give you a concrete example. You know, I was a single mom at one point with a toddler son, and I was suffering from time poverty. I Mm -hmm. had no time. I was working full time. You know, I had a very long commute, being a single mom on top of that. And I was also struggling with health issues. And so the one thing that I needed more than anything was time. And by creating a formalized community of care and sharing my struggles and the things that I needed to enact to make sure that I could be well enough to show up, not just for my son, but for my community and for myself, you know, these were the things that I was struggling with. People in my formalized community of care were able to say, well, I can take that off your plate and I can do this for you to give you back an hour of your life a week and I can do this and I can do that. And suddenly I found that, you know, I had this safety net that was really able to help me and move me into a thriving mode from just merely a survival mode. And, and so, so hard for yeah. people to ask that. People have trouble asking. Yeah, but having a formalized community of care removes the need to ask for help because it's something that everybody is doing. It presupposes when you have a community care, it presupposes that every human being in your community has something that they need, regardless of their socioeconomic status, and that every person in your community has something that they can give. Period. Excellent. So it creates a redistribution of wealth. And I define wealth very loosely, right? Like Mm -hmm. time, health, energy. Resources, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the third part of the book is we move from the we and the journey of the we to the us. Because what I realized, as I mentioned in our previous discussion, is that, you know, having these safety nets and community of care, what happens is that it continues to expand out as ripples of influence, as, you know, this monumental ripple effect. When a community is healthy and well, and the people in it, for the most part, have enough, and they are, you know, starting to lean into thriving mode, what ultimately happens is that that community continues to, like the universe almost, like expand out continuously. And the influence that it has on people's lives and on systems and structures and laws and, you know, again, building the world that we want to be living in and that we want our children to live in and our grandchildren to live in, you know, we start to recognize that these communities are like organisms and that they just continue to overlap with other healthy communities and with other communities that may not have enough. And then we can create, again, these symbiotic connections, this beautiful ecosystem between communities. And that ultimately lends to the creation of movements. And so really the third section is sort of this lighting of the fire 
<laughs> and it tells people to just get off their butts, to put it in simple layman's terms, right? And hence the title, sit down to rise up, sit down in meditation. Yes, do the inner work, but understand that there's got to be this intrinsic connection to the outer world and to rising up rising up for other people, rising up for your community, rising up for the world. Because if we're only doing the inner work to sustain ourselves and to benefit ourselves, then really what are we doing the inner work for in the first place? That's so true. And I love this book because it's just such a map from, as you said, going inward to then taking action. And you really take us through the steps to do that. And it's no secret that this is a divisive time in our country and globally. And how can self-care and taking action like this start breaking down some of the divisions between us yeah. and start bringing us together? Correct. Exactly. Well, I mean, the through line of the book is that the best version of the world starts with the best version of us. And so if we can remember that, and we can understand that there is that really important connection between the two, then you're right. We can absolutely create so many bridges between these seeming divides that we have, that we've been conditioned to believe that we have, that really, at the end of the day, don't exist. That's incredible. So you've been very generous with your time, and I appreciate that. Before I let you go, can you tell me what your greatest hope is for each person who reads this book? My greatest hope would be that people feel empowered and that they realize that one person can make a huge difference. And that, you know, really, again, just realize that by tending to the area of the gardens that we can reach individually, that we can absolutely change the world. Love that. Shelly, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for the wisdom that you are sending out into the world and, and the kind of changes that you're helping us make. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and I appreciate the platform and this community. That was Shelley Tagelski talking about her new book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the Community. If you'd like to learn more about Shelley, buy her book or follow her on social media, visit our website at livehappy.com and click on the podcast link. And if you're looking for some great end-of-year deals on cool Live Happy merch, we got you. Head over to the Live Happy store from January 1st through 7th and get 20% off everything in the store with the code HAPPY2022. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.